Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. And in the spotlight, what is happening around the world? We are going to take a global perspective of that. Joining us is senior journalist with BBC World Service Partner Hub in London, Jonathan uh, Freewin. Good morning to you, Jonathan. And uh, let us start with this teacher walkout in England and Wales. How disruptive is this and what brought about this strike? Well, like so many public sector workers, teachers have voted to strike. It's uh, coming up this Wednesday because they don't feel their pay settlement is keeping up with the high rate of inflation. The National Education Union, which is the body behind this particular action, reckons around 100,000 of its members will walk out, disrupting some 23,000 schools. It's the first of four strike dates that have been announced. There's regional ones later in the month, and then a two-day nationwide strike in the middle of March. It's up to head teachers where the schools will close, but it looks likely that most will. My daughters who attend a primary and a secondary school are both not expected to turn up. So provision will be laid on for some pupils. In many cases, children who face big end-of-year exams will have study space and possibly some lessons. The Institute for Fiscal Study here says that teacher salaries in England fell by an average of 11% between 2010 and last year once inflation is taken into account, and the pay offer of 5% to teachers for 2022 has been rejected. Inflation is currently running at around 10.5%. Now, this isn't the only sector affected by strike action, right? We've been seeing this in various other sectors as well. What is the plan here to resolve all of these issues, to get people back to work? Well, there's ongoing disputes in quite a few areas. Series of postal strikes, train operators, civil servants will be striking on Wednesday and some university staff then and later in February. Um, We've had quite impactful strikes in the government-funded National Health Service. Uh, In terms of trying to resolve the situation, it's just a question of getting people round the table. But the government says there isn't any more money to be given and the uh, the striking unions are saying, well, we need we need more pay settlement. The nurses, um, there's been, you know, significant strikes in the National Health Service, government-funded NHS. Nurses have been striking, citing concerns about workloads and inadequate pay. Ambulance paramedics have also been striking. Um, nurses have put in a claim saying they want to be paid 19% more. They've indicated recently they, they would take something closer to 10%. Um, let's talk a little bit about public support. It tends to vary sector by sector. Uh, for nurses and paramedics, Polling indicates around two-thirds of people are supportive of the strikes. For teachers, the figure is around 50%, but only around a third of people support strikes that are upcoming by civil servants. So it's going to be interesting to see how the government tries to settle these different actions. There are some that have been successfully resolved. Criminal barristers in England and Wales accepted a 15% pay rise in October, and bus drivers in London agreed an 11% pay deal. And when somebody gets a pay raise in the public sector, of course, is going to come from somewhere or at the expense of some other sectors. So how are they going to be able to deal with that? Well, what they've been doing so far is saying that any settlements that are negotiated will come out of current budgets. And so, you know, if you increase the pay settlement to a public sector worker, you're going to have to find some cuts elsewhere in the sector in terms of educational provision. It's it's a really thorny issue, and neither side seems willing to budge on the ongoing disputes at the moment. So it's going to be a tricky one to resolve, I think. We'll see how that unfolds, but uh, there are other items that we should be watching as well. On Wednesday, the European Commission will present proposals for the European Union to tackle the energy crisis, as well as respond to U.S. and Chinese subsidies. What exactly can we expect here? Well, one of the key issues here is how the EU responds to what's called the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. That brought about a raft of 
green energy incentives designed to bring investment to the U.S. It's worth hundreds of billions of dollars and involves subsidies and tax credits for the production of electric vehicles, renewable electricity, sustainable aviation, fuel and hydrogen. Now, the electric car credit, for example, only applies to vehicles largely made in the U.S. or its free trade partners like Mexico and Canada. So the EU is concerned that these subsidies could attract investment to America that would otherwise have been made in Europe. The U.S. says these measures were designed to tackle competition from China and don't target its EU partners, but there's some skepticism on this side of the Atlantic about that. There's an EU-US task force that's aimed at ironing out wrinkles with the Inflation Reduction Act, and President Biden's indicated that there may be some room for a manoeuvre to tweak it to make it easier for European companies to, t- to participate. So what might the European Commission propose? There's talk of a package of funding for the green industry in the European Union, but that's not guaranteed. At the end of last week, Reuters reported that seven... EU countries openly rejected the idea of new green funding in a letter to the Commission. Those countries included the Czech Republic, Denmark, Austria and Ireland. The seven, combined with Germany, the Netherlands and Belgium, although those last three weren't signatories to that letter, they're all opposed to any new joint EU borrowing for this purpose, arguing instead that the EU should be using funds already approved instead of seeking more money. Discussing these issues with the BBC recently, France's Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire indicated that there may be a need to have by European provisions in a package of green energy measures to counter the Inflation Reduction Act. But Ireland's Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, acknowledged that whilst there does need to be a response from the EU, perhaps involving state aid and subsidies for European businesses, he thought by European provisions would be, as he put it, really just protectionism and possibly a step too far. The issue is that it could all end up with the World Trade Organization in a big dispute that could take years and years to try and resolve, like the uh, disagreement over Boeing and Airbus subsidies on uh, plane manufacturers. So it's a thorny issue, and it doesn't look like there's complete agreement yet on exactly how the EU will proceed. Well, since you brought up uh, the plane issue, let's get to that one, uh, Jonathan, because uh, on Tuesday, the final Boeing 747 jumbo jet to be manufactured by Boeing will be delivered to its customer. And then uh, Airbus's A320, uh, A380 super jumbo, what happens to that as well? Do you have any updates? Well, uh, anyone who's flown long haul is likely to have traveled on a 747 at some point. The wide-body plane is easily recognized with its four engines and a hump on the top. The first one was built in 1968, and Boeing have made nearly 1,600 of the planes in the 55 years since then. The first commercial flight came in 1970. This final delivery of a 747 is a freight version of the plane, and it's destined for Atlas Air. The final passenger 747 rolled off the production line for Korean Air back in 2017. The Boeing 777 is now the company's largest commercial jet. The passenger version of that can carry 550 people if you just have one class uh, compared to around 700 for a jumbo jet obviously airlines typically configure multiple passenger classes so carry far fewer than that now when the 747 was introduced it was more than double the size of Boeing's then workhorse the 707 um, the request to develop something much bigger had come from one of Boeing's biggest customers Pan Am his boss had noted that there was increased congestion at airports and thought that a bigger plane would help keep down airline running costs mm. um, the initial jumbo jets were gas guzzlers and the plane struggled in its first incarnation to gain a toehold because of the oil crisis in the early 70s but it was redesigned and then caught on quickly. And in some cases, the planes were very luxurious, piano bars, spiral staircases. And then, as you say, competition arrived from Airbus's A380 Super Jumbo. Uh, that uh, launched full double-decker plane, flew commercially in 2007 with Singapore Airlines in an all-economy class configuration. But um, the plane makers had these two simultaneous gambles in operation. One was on big planes that would travel to big airports with smaller planes taking passengers to other airports, hub-and-spoke model. And the other gamble was that airlines would prefer to flight smaller planes further and direct to the final destination. And that second vision is the one that seems to have captured the imaginations of the airlines that buy the planes. The last A380 was delivered in 2021, and now we see the demise of the 747. More efficient, somewhat smaller planes seem to be the way of the future. Though it is worth noting that we'll continue to see the big planes for some time to come. There are still... 
around half of the original 250 Airbus A380s in service, and mm-hmm. there are 40 or so passenger 747 still in use, alongside several hundred of the freight version. And then two already built jumbo jets are undergoing conversion to become the next Air Force One planes that transport the U.S. president, and mm-hmm. those don't expect uh, to enter service for quite some time yet. Mm, I'm sure travellers all over the world will be watching out for this as well. But here's uh, something else we need to talk about before we let you go, Jonathan. Uh, This weekend, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is expected to travel to China, and it's been a while since the last such visit by U.S. Secretary of State. Also, we have to bear in mind, this is taking place against the backdrop of an ongoing trade war between China and the U.S., Yes, absolutely. This is the first visit uh, by U.S. Secretary of State since Mike Pompeo headed to China in October 2018. It's a busy week for Antony Blinken. He's in the Middle East right now and then travels to China at the weekend. That visit has come about in the wake of Chinese President Xi and U.S. President Biden's meeting on the fringes of the G20 in Bali late last year. Antony Blinken will be meeting with his Chinese counterpart, Qinggang. And there's plenty to discuss, not least of which I'm sure will be China's stance on the war in Ukraine. China has never condemned Russia's invasion of the country and has not joined in with Western sanctions against Russia on the issue. It's essentially attempted to position itself as a neutral party with regard to the conflict. And then just last Friday, the U.S. sanctioned a Chinese company for allegedly providing satellite imagery of Ukraine to support the mercenary Wagner Group's combat operations for Russia. Then there's the U.S. concerns about China's approach towards Taiwan. President Xi considers the self-governing island to be part of China, whereas the U.S. is committed to its independence. And Hmm. there are even indications that the U.S. might get involved militarily should China try to take Taiwan by force. And I'm sure those issues will be on the agenda for discussion. And as you say, there's this ongoing trade war between China and the U.S. Uh, A few years ago, former President U.S. Trump, uh, former U.S. President Trump imposed a significant trade tariff uh, array on Chinese imports, arguing that China was engaging in unfair trade practices and intellectual property theft. Now, those tariffs remained in place after Joe Biden became U.S. President, and China would, of course, like to see those lifted. But President Biden has introduced new measures even more recently, whereas the scramble for oil around the world largely defined geopolitics in the 20th century. The microchips that power our computers and smartphones are increasingly an arena that great powers are seeking great control, global control over. And China wants the technology to produce chips, but the U.S., a source of much of that technology that lies behind them, is trying to cut the country off. Semiconductors were invented in the U.S., but over time, obviously, East Asia has emerged as a manufacturing hub. And most of the world's chips are made in Taiwan, which gives the island what its president calls a silicon shield. Mm-hmm. Um, protection from China, which, as I mentioned, claims the territory. But Beijing has made chip manufacture a significant priority, so the Biden administration introduced sweeping export controls that make it virtually impossible for companies to sell chips and chip-making equipment containing U.S. tech to China, no matter where they're based in the world. And it hits China hard because it imports both the hardware and the talent that fuels its nascent chip-building industry. Um, and then what's known as the Chips and Science Act in the U.S. also offers tens of billions of dollars in subsidies to companies looking to bring chip manufacture back to the U.S. It's all hitting China where it hurts. Apple recently cancelled plans to buy more memory chips from a Chinese manufacturer, and trade experts see this playing out in a similar way to how China's Huawei, which had been the world's mm. biggest, second biggest smartphone manufacturer, became essentially hobbled by U.S. restrictions on tech transfer to the company. But this time it's an entire national industry that's at play rather than just one company. So there's much for Anthony Blinken and Qinggang to discuss, and it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Yes, indeed. We will be keeping an eye on that as well. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for joining us here. Jonathan Freewin, senior journalist with BBC World Service, with some of the global headlines we need to pay attention to. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.